Welcome to the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And I'm Kenton Steele, an associate in Reminger's Columbus office. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affect our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. I am excited today to have a special guest with us, Kelly Kay, who is the Executive Vice President, Chief Financial Officer, and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Toyota Research Institute. Kelly, before we jump into the questions, let me just thank you for joining us here today, and I I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know that you have a a very interesting career as it relates to your time in what we would call emerging technologies, where your career has really spanned over multiple different um, industries as it relates to kind of emerging technologies And so I'd love to hear both your experience as a practicing lawyer in this space, but also kind of what you're doing now with the Toyota Research Institute and kind of, you know, where you see some of these emerging technology trends and issues going. And so if we could just back up, when you began your legal career, how did you get started working with emerging technologies? Um, Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me here today. I'm really excited to share a little bit about emerging technologies and my career. Um, To answer your first question, um, I actually started my career uh, fresh out of law school at uh, what's Bank One um, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, When I was there, I actually came in as a what I called myself a baby lawyer at the time. So again, fresh out of law school, not from a law firm. So I already started out a little untraditional by going directly into the bank. Um, One of my first projects was something that had sat on a shelf for about six months in the legal department. Um, It was a big folder and I was the new lawyer. So I said to my like managing partner type person, "Um, so what is this project? What should I work on? And she was like, well, there's this thing. It's an online project and none of us really wanted to touch it. And at that time, I was the only lawyer with a computer on my desk. Um, And otherwise, everyone else would dictate their emails to their admins and the admins would type them all up for them. They never actually even checked their own emails. Um, So as the new lawyer and the person who actually had a computer and could write my own emails, they said, you should work on this project. Um, And the project ended up being an online home equity loan application project. Um, And my job was to really figure out how do we take these antiquated home equity loan rules uh, that spanned across all 50 states and turn it into something that people could apply for online and comply with all the regulatory requirements that were out there, including the requirement that there was a nine by or eight by 10 piece of paper with X point font on it, giving the consumer certain disclosures. I'm like, well, how do you do that online? Um, And that really was kind of the beginning for me of really stepping into Um, dealing with emerging technologies and how they intersect with highly regulated industries like banking. Um, So it was a pretty exciting project for me. And it led to really, I think, my entire career because I got really closely um, paired with the product teams that were trying to put these things together. And it ultimately resulted in me working on a very special project at Bank One that was called Wingspan Bank, which was meant to be a 100% online bank. And uh, 
that was a project where I was the only lawyer on it. Um, and we sat in a room in Wilmington, Delaware, with a bunch of consultants trying to pull together an online bank. And it was really, really fun for me as a lawyer to really think outside of the box as to how do you figure out taking these really old school rules that really were never meant to be put online and, and doing it in what I would call record time for a large financial institution. You know, it, one of the things that I think that we, this reoccurring theme on this podcast that we do and we talk about is how these emerging technologies um, oftentimes are introduced before the regulations or the legislatures have a chance to catch up to them. And so it, it's interesting to kind of hear your perspective because – the banking industry has obviously been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, but the regulations obviously are newer than that. But you're focused on ad adapting or changing a technology that today we take for granted, online banking. I, I joke that I bank you know, 99% of the time from the phone in my pocket you know, and 1% from the actual physical location of the bank. But you're taking the emerging technology and then and then making sure it fits into such a highly regulated space. And so um, it's an, kind of an interesting, sometimes a little bit of a flip on that, but it um, but I can see how it kind of sparked your career in these highly regulated fields. Now, I know you transitioned um, from bank one to eBay, which is also a, a company I'm sure that many people are familiar with. Tell me about that transition and what you were working on for eBay. Sure. Um, this was just another random luck of the draw situation for me. I had gone out to California to work at a, on a privacy roundtable. So again, these were the days when we were trying to figure out how to comply with privacy rules online as well. So um, it's kind of the late 90s. Uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act had just been modified um, and there was a group of us that had websites that were sitting around at a table trying to figure out how do we all work together on what the privacy rules should look like. Um, at that table, I met the first lawyer from eBay. Um, he and I started talking um, over, over coffee or something. And he said to me, well, you should come in and interview at eBay. They were having a really hard time getting lawyers. And like the market in California was going crazy. This was like the first big internet boom that was going on. Um, and I said, no, no, I'm working at a bank. I'm a conservative bank lawyer from the East Coast. There's no way I'm going to a crazy internet company. Um, but he convinced me to go in the next day. And I met with uh, the lawyers that were there and a couple of the business people that were there. Um, I accepted the job that day and moved 10 days later to California um, to actually start working at eBay. I think it was the fifth lawyer there. Um, and that really meant we did everything from constructing our own desks to dealing with uh, the space shuttle crashing and should um, space shuttle parts be allowed to be sold online. It, and I know that uh, at your time at eBay, you did a lot of uh, focus on the international market. So markets outside of the United States, is that right? Yes. And so tell me about some of the situations you may have encountered in dealing with some of the regulations in the foreign markets that maybe you saw as unique. Yeah, I think going into eBay, there was still a lot of uncertainty as to what the law was even in the U.S. for items that were sold by third parties on a platform. This whole idea of a platform didn't really exist yet. 
Um, so they were looking at eBay as like, is it an auction house and should it be uh, regulated as an auction house? Because regulators are always looking for ways to take kind of business models or businesses that come up and fit them into existing rules. They don't want to have to think too hard and create new rules. That's that's difficult. So why can't businesses just fit in those existing ones? Um, so at eBay in the U.S., I'll start with the U.S. and then I'll get to international. We really had to focus on how do we make sure the business isn't interpreted as an auction house because there's completely different rules that apply to that and a different way of operating than how eBay actually operated. But one of the key things that, that we had to struggle with was what happens if someone were to sell a fake Louis Vuitton bag on the website. And this was at the point where the DCMA was just in the process of being created. Um, and I did not work on that project at eBay. There was another lawyer that worked um, on kind of what should that law look like with our government relations team. But this third party liability for kind of things that were sold through your platform uh, was something that was really unsettled across the world. Um, and eBay was in the process of really expanding its business everywhere it could. It was doing acquisitions um, in Europe. And I worked on an acquisition of a company in India. Um, and it was really interesting. So the deal had just closed. I was laying in bed in the middle of the night here in California, and I got a, I got a phone call on my BlackBerry. Um, and it was actually the CEO of the company that we had purchased in India. And he was calling to tell me that he had just been arrested. And I was like, whoa, what happened? Why, are you, why, why did you get arrested? He's like, well, someone had sold something using their platform um, in India um, that was considered illegal under Indian law. And they had strict liability. Um, and you didn't actually have to have actual knowledge of what was being sold on the website. If it was illegal, you as the leader of the company were personally liable for that. So not only did the company have liability, but he as the CEO had liability, even though he had no actual knowledge that there was something that was illegal that had been sold on the site. Now, in the U.S., the law had progressed to the point where if you didn't have actual knowledge and you had certain steps that you were taking to ensure that illegal things weren't being sold on your site at that point, you could spider the site using keywords and it would pull up things you know, like drugs or whatever um, to make sure they didn't get sold. Um, but even though those practices were in place in, uh, in India at the time, he ended up getting arrested for it. And, you know, I find that, you know, the fact that the laws were so unsettled and so inconsistent across different markets it really made the expansion of a business like eBay's difficult at the time because you didn't quite know what kind of a quagmire you were going to fall into when you launched a site in different countries, um, given the, the the different or the variations on what was illegal and what wasn't. So, for instance, in Indonesia, it's illegal to sell a Buddha statue. Um, so you have to look at things like that. In the U.S., you have to look at things like pornography, cigarettes, drugs, like what are all the rules that, that apply? And because cultures are so different, you find different rules apply. So that really did spark a whole new group at eBay, kind of called the trust and safety group, um, where the lawyers would figure out what all the laws were that applied. Trust and safety would work to figure out how to actually ensure they weren't on the website. But the, the India story was an amazing one um, and really showed how not, not knowing um, what can happen in an emerging business um, from a legal perspective, like the bigger you get, the harder you fall, I think, from a business perspective, if you're not paying attention to all of those rules. And I think when you're a startup, you're coming up with these new emerging ideas, you can't spend your time and you shouldn't spend your time trying to figure out what all the rules are. It's, it's almost like a big forgiveness thing if you're small enough, um, but really use your conscious in deciding what you think is a good thing to do um, with your emerging technology and making sure that you're I say being moralistic, but you're using your conscious of like, should is this something that is dangerous to people, um, 
or does it comply with our culture? Um, so when you don't have a law that applies, I, just, I find that a lot of times I, as the lawyer, become the conscious of the company thinking through like, okay, what are regulators going to care about so that we don't get shut down before we get out the door? And, and that's really the concern when you're working with startups is, is trying to get them to the state where they can grow large enough. Um, and then you work with the regulators to figure out how to adapt the rules um, to what's happening in the technology business. Now, after your time at eBay, I know you transitioned to PayPal, another company that I'm sure that our listeners are familiar with. And I know you were working and focused on the Asian markets. As an attorney in that role, again, back in kind of, you know, dealing with some of the financial sector issues, how are you juggling the the numerous financial regulations kind of across the various countries um, in that respect? It was difficult. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think what I what was really lucky is I had a great set of business partners um, through this process. Um, and because it is financial services, you do have to be careful how you do this. Um, considering the orange jumpsuit rule does apply if you mess this up, um, you do go to jail, especially in the financial services world, if you don't do things in compliance with the regulations. Um, you know, what was unique about PayPal is we did have very large uh, banks that we worked with across the world, and they helped us meet with the different regulators, have open discussions with the regulators about what was possible from a, a technology perspective. And again, as well, thinking about what are their concerns um, for their uh, consumers within their countries. Um, so keeping track of the law was really about working closely with outside counsel, um, working with the banks and their compliance officers to make sure that you know nobody was doing anything they weren't supposed to be doing. And then going back to uh, the product teams at PayPal and figuring out how do we comply with all of this. Um, their strong desire was to have a single platform that, and rules that would apply across all the countries. Um, that's pretty hard to do, especially when you're dealing with different currencies, um, different concerns. Um, I think there had been some currency fluctuation issues um, around the time that I was there. Um, in like around 2000. Um, and so governments were really trying to like buckle down and stop cross-country currency transactions. So we had to go in and convince them why it was safe and how we could help them make it safe. Now, I know that you had some other uh, jobs in the interim, but you had transitioned to a company called Yapstone Inc., and I noticed uh, when I looked at your resume and your bio, and, and, and you and I discussed this a little bit before, but it appears to me that this was a time when you kind of transitioned out from being kind of exclusively in the council legal role to more of an operations role. Is that fair? Pretty fair. Um, I started as the general counsel. Um, it was my dream job to be the general counsel of a payments company. So I was I was really lucky uh, to get that role um, and partnered pretty much with the CEO and the CFO and took on a lot of different responsibilities. Again, payments companies are highly regulated. So the general counsel and the, the legal team play a larger role, I think, in payments companies than they might do in other companies. And it really opened me up to a lot of different opportunities there. Um, for instance, working closely on setting up the controls from a financial perspective to ensure they complied with the rules as a payments company, um, dealing with cybersecurity issues and the auditing of our systems um, by Visa and MasterCard that we were required to do every couple of years. Um, so it really broadened my horizon on different issues that were out there. Also, lawyers always get 
you know, roped into HR issues. Um, so pretty soon I was finding myself with my fingers um, in many pies across the company and seeing that lawyers come at things from a different angle. I mean, we look at things from across the top and we tend to see the connections between different parts of an organization. And we seem to have uh, predictive powers over what the risks are and what could go wrong. Um, so we're able to a lot of times kind of step in and say, hey, have you thought about doing it like this? Or we could prevent this by, from happening by doing this. Um, and sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, lawyers are too risk adverse. No, we see the risks. And that allows us to kind of go into things knowing how to accept the risk. And I think knowing acceptance of risk is important as a business leader. Um, and also thinking through how can we potentially mitigate them. Um, so I think this angle really gave me something special. Um, and the board saw that. And I was actually, I shifted from being the general counsel to being the COO and responsible for a lot of the business because they saw that, I think, the, the breadth of the view that lawyers can bring to the table, especially in these regulated spaces. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of kind of my shift from from pure legal and compliance. I did some oper compliance operations work when I was at PayPal as well and kind of getting the, the compliance organization set up for Asia. Um, but um, that was really the first time I stepped into kind of business responsibility um, and really making sure that the, you know, the wheels stayed on the bus, that the bus stopped at all the right stops, um, that we accepted all the passengers we could from a customer perspective and really kept things moving. It, and I think you, and I, you already kind of touched on this, um, but as the general counsel, and as a lawyer, you, you talked about how you had your kind of finger in a lot of the, the pies and a lot of the, the parts of the organization um, just to begin with. And so, I mean, is it it's almost – is it safe to assume or to say that you kind of see it as like almost a natural transition since you were already involved in so many pieces of the organization? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, one of the things that I found out after the fact, and as I continue in my career, is that lawyers are leaders in a lot of organizations. You'll find a lot of CEOs and COOs, especially, that transition from a legal role into a COO or chief administrative officer type of role. Um, and I, I didn't know that before I took the, the role um, at Yapstone, um, but it was, again, a great uh, like a next step for me as a leader. That concludes the first part of our interview with Kelly Kay from Toyota Research Institute. Join us next time when we continue our discussion with her about how, as a lawyer, emerging technologies have impact and shaped her career. <laughs>